When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Social Security is one of the most complex and confusing federal programs. With over 2,700 rules, it's no wonder that we're confused about when and how to start collecting and who to turn to for help. Welcome to Social Security Answers from the Experts, hosted by Martha Shedden. In this podcast series, Martha meets with professionals to provide you with the answers to questions about this most important financial decision. And now, here's your host, President and co-founder of the National Association of Registered Social Security Analysts, Martha Shedden. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another very informative and exciting show. I am your host, Martha Shedden, and today I have the pleasure of welcoming Corey Metzman to the podcast. Corey's career has been focused on the healthcare industry, starting with McKinsey and Company, where he worked with health systems, insurance companies, and public health organizations. He is currently Chief Operating Officer and co-founder at Chapter, a technology-driven Medicare advisory organization that empowers older Americans to navigate Medicare. Corey's extensive education includes undergraduate degrees in economics from Wharton and international studies from the University of Pennsylvania. He also holds graduate degrees in law and finance from Oxford and international development from the London School of Economics and Political Science, where he was a Marshall Scholar. Corey, I am so happy to be talking with you today. Martha, it is a pleasure to be here with you and to speak with you again. Thanks so much for having me on. Yes, I'm really looking forward to the show. Um, I know those approaching age 65 are receiving tons of mail about Medicare. Can you give us a quick Medicare 101 lesson? What advice do you have for those people to cut through all those mailers and flyers to simplify the program? Absolutely. Let me start by reviewing what Medicare is for just a few moments, and then we'll talk about how to make sense of it all. Medicare, as many people know, is health insurance provided for people over the age of 65 or under the age of 65 with certain qualifying disabilities, um, or truly the time period that you've been receiving disability assistance, or people with ALS um, or end-stage renal disease. Um, it's provided by the federal government, and it is complicated because it has been built piecemeal from 1965, and we can return to the history later, but that's what it is. Um, the majority of Americans become eligible when they approach age 65. They qualify for Medicare by reason of age, and they start to receive mountains of mail because various private insurance companies that fill gaps in services or costs not covered by original Medicare um, want to get in front of those people to uh, make them aware of the options that may be available or sometimes sell them a plan. But importantly, 
almost all of those communications are step two. And so the first piece of advice on making sense of it is you have to understand step one, which is how and when to sign up for original Medicare. That's known as part A and part B. And so I'd say before people look at all of the details there from any of the private insurance companies or brokerages or advisory organizations like ours um, that um, may be reaching out or communicating with people as they approach age 65, you should decide Should you sign up for original Medicare? Do you have to? And how do you navigate that first step in the process? That was so helpful, Corey. So at Chapter, your website says you offer greater choice and clarity while minimizing cost and complexity when it comes to Medicare. Can you give us some insight into how exactly you're able to do that? Yeah, so when people are transitioning to Medicare or navigating Medicare, there's a few steps that people need to go through. Two of them are typically one-time steps, and the third is a repeat step. Step one, as I mentioned, is people need to decide how and when should they sign up for original Medicare, part A and B. This will vary based on people's employment status, the size of their employer, and the cost of their current coverage. So one of the things that we do at Chapter is to help people decide how and when to sign up for original Medicare. That's step one. And it's one of the things that we wish more people would do as well. Step two is for people to decide whether or how they want to fill the gaps and costs and services that original Medicare covers. At a high level, original Medicare, both the hospital portion known as Part A and the outpatient medical services portion known as Part B, only cover approximately 80% of the costs for the scope of services they cover. That means the remaining 20 plus percent is the responsibility of the beneficiary. Um, And original Medicare doesn't cover anything um, in terms of prescription drug coverage, in terms of dental vision and hearing. And so we help people decide whether or not they want to consider to purchase additional coverage to fill those gaps and costs or services that original Medicare doesn't cover. Now you asked, you know, what do we mean by helping people to maximize clarity and minimize complexity while maximizing savings and benefits. And that really goes to why we started Chapter. Chapter's mission is to help people not only decide how and when to sign up for Medicare, but to navigate step three. What is the right way to fill those gaps in coverage or services that original Medicare doesn't? And the challenge we wanted to address is that there are more than 20,000 permutations That means 20,000 different types of combinations of additional coverage nationwide, different networks of doctors, different premiums, different coverage for various prescription drug options. And there's not a single place or a single resource that Medicare eligible Americans can go to to search through every single one at the level of granularity they need. Um, I know people, some people will say, wait, well, can't you do that on Medicare.gov or this other website? The short answer is no, but I'll come back to that. At Chapter, what we've tried to do is build a universal database of all of those plans and do so at an unprecedented level of granularity. Every doctor, every hospital, every prescription, every pharmacy, every ancillary benefit like dental, vision, and hearing, and so forth, to be able to guarantee that we can match people, not with the best plan, because there is no such thing as the best plan for everyone, but the best fitting plan for each individual, given his or her needs, her budget, her preferences, her physicians, and someone's prescriptions as well. So that's what we do. And I think the last part that's important to emphasize is traditionally, many people 
in most insurance industries say that they always try and be consumer centric, but it's really hard to be able to search every single plan unless you have a contract with every carrier or you built the type of database that we have, which is the approach that we've taken, which is why the guidance is neutral. Now, the fact that it's taken me five minutes to explain that um, <laughs> is only the tip of the iceberg um, with respect to the complexity here. But at Chapter, our goal and our mission is to be that single point of contact for people to answer all of their questions because it's what we do every day. And our commitment is that the consumer's interests are always first. We've got a database and a business model that enables that, which to be specific, as it should be, when the consumer's interests conflict with anyone else's, including our own, it's the consumer's interests that can and should take precedence as they do at Chapter. That's wonderful. So it's that technology that you've developed to have all these this information for anyone across the nation. And is it mostly individuals you work with or do you work with other professionals? Tell me more about that. Yeah, so it's a great question. Um, we advise exclusively on individual Medicare policies. And okay. so these are the types of policies that people may choose to navigate or select as they turn 65 or as they come upon the annual enrollment period, or for certain types of policies, they're not constrained to the annual enrollment period through year round. But your question was actually a little bit different, which is, you know, how do people find us? You know, individuals often find us. We do a lot of work with leading nonprofit organizations, faith-based okay. groups, elected officials and municipalities who bring us in to help educate their employees, their constituents, their congregants, their community members, precisely because of our universal search and fiduciary type approach. I think um, the other interesting component about that, because we search every plan and we place the consumer's interest above our own, we've been lucky to partner with some tremendous organizations like the National Council on Aging. Um, because one of the challenges that people face in Medicare, perhaps like Social Security as well, is it's really hard to know when you first choose a plan if it was the right plan. You only find that out down the line if you have a problem or if you avoid problems. You know, if your claims are paid as you expect and you, you know, are able to go see your doctors who are in network and get your prescriptions filled at the most affordable rates, in some ways, the absence of problems is the best sign that it was truly the right recommendation. And so what we try and do is, you know, not only give the tools and resources to people to, you know, if they give us a list of doctors and prescriptions and ancillary benefits to match them with those, but also give them the year-round support to help them solve problems, right? Because unfortunately, um, or sometimes fortunately, plans can change, of course, every year, but sometimes the list of covered drugs will change in the middle of the year. Um, and sometimes it's good because it means someone's drug may be covered at a more affordable rate, but sometimes that can be a challenge. But no matter what the situation is, our licensed advisors act as constant resources for people as they navigate those Medicare choices. And it makes sense. Medicare, unlike Social Security, is an ongoing um, keeping your plan up to date as not only the plans and offerings change, but your own health conditions and prescription drugs change. That's exactly right, Martha. So in a typical county, there are oftentimes close to 100 different Medicare plans available. And as those plans will change their premiums, um, if they have networks of physicians, which some plans do, they may change their networks every year. They may change the list of drugs they cover and the co-pays they ask you to pay for those drugs. And so even if nothing about someone's health situation changes, it's yeah. always helpful 
either every year or every few years to go back and take a look. Um, and we help folks to do that every day. But it's particularly important if someone's health situation does change. They're taking a new prescription. They need to go to a new hospital or see a new physician. And even if they have a type of plan that has the majority or all doctors who take original Medicare and network as certain plans allow, those plans can still change their premiums every year. And so it's important to keep a close eye on those as well. So you must be constantly, you have a team that's constantly updating your database for all that information. That's exactly right. So we have gone through, um, you know, a three-step process in building the database. First is, where do you go and get information about every plan? And some of this, you can get from publicly available data sources that some of the federal regulators make available, but not all of it. And so remember how I said earlier that many people think you can search every option on Medicare.gov. We use a lot of the underlying data they make available, but Medicare.gov does not make available Um, the specific doctors or hospitals that are in network with particular plans that have networks. And then there's another type of plan. So I'm talking about Medicare Advantage plans there. There are also Medicare supplement plans, which are fantastic options for people who want to maximize network flexibility and peace of mind. But Medicare.gov is administered or it's offered by the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services. It's the federal regulator. But Medicare supplements are regulated on the state level. So Medicare.gov doesn't directly regulate and can't even show all Medicare supplement options. And so we um, first, you know, as I said, the challenge was how do we go figure out all the places to get all the information about every plan? So there's doctors, there's prescriptions, there's pharmacies, there's hearing aids, there um, is, you know, what a particular prescription costs at a particular pharmacy and so forth on a particular plan. And so first is getting that information. Second is building the data pipelines to port those into our database. And third is building the ability to update that database, not quite daily, but frequently on a weekly and certainly on a monthly basis when things like formularies, which is the term of art for the list of covered drugs change on a monthly basis. And so that database was a heavy thing for us to build. Our engineering team didn't come from healthcare, actually. You know, a lot of folks on our engineering team came from Palantir, which is a software and data integration company, because we view the foundational step. If you're going to place the consumer interest first, you have to search every plan. And it's impossible to get a contract with every carrier, right? You can, we have contracts with the majority of carriers, as do many other folks, right? But to, to make the commitment that we're going to search every plan, you can't rely on getting that data through contracts from carriers. You have to build that database. And then you have to empower a team of licensed advisors to search across that database with a consumer. But then there's one last thing that we realized we had to do, which is that if you know the traditional insurance brokerage model, brokers only get paid when they place someone with a plan that's issued by a carrier that pays the broker, right? Or that pays the agent, right? And there are many independent brokers out there, right? And, uh, you know, almost all of them are knowledgeable and very capable, but it's only possible to understand a finite number of plans without the aid of software. But that's necessary, but it's not sufficient. It's not quite enough. We've realized that you actually have to pay uh, the people making the recommendations identical compensation or compensation that never varies based on the plan that's recommended or that selected. Otherwise, there's a risk that something else that's not the interest of the consumer could be swaying a recommendation, 
irrespective of what the software allows us to do. And so we've done that in that chapter. Our licensed advisors, their compensation never varies on the specific coverage that's recommended or selected, even if it's with one of the few carriers that we don't have a relationship with. Um, our view is a little bit different than the industry. We view that as the cost of doing business, as it should be, um, but it's only enabled because the database allows us to search all of those plans, which is what has historically been the constraint in the industry. Yes, I can only imagine what it took to develop that. Uh, what are the most common misunderstandings about Medicare that have the most effect on people's lives? I would imagine those are the penalties and the pitfalls that can face um, retirees. Yeah, so let's talk about some of the most common mistakes. I think it's very easy for people to assume that the decision to sign up for original Medicare is the same for everyone. And it's not quite true. So, you know, let's break it up into two or three pitfalls. First is how and when to sign up for original Medicare and the penalty conversation. Mm -hmm. Second are the considerations that people should think about when they choose their first type of additional coverage, whether it's none at all or a Medicare supplement plus a Part D standalone drug plan or a Medicare Advantage plan. And third, what are the mistakes we see on an ongoing basis? So this will be a little bit of a longer answer, but I think this is helpful for people to understand. Medicare, um, the sign up for original Medicare is administered by the Social Security Administration, actually. And so step one is to figure out, are you going to be default enrolled or not enrolled when you turn 65? The common short answer, which isn't universally true, but is if someone is already drawing Social Security or Railroad Retirement Board benefits as they approach their 65th birthday, they will be auto-enrolled in both Part A and Part B of Medicare unless they opt out. And they'll receive a notice from the Social Security Administration saying, you know, you're going to be enrolled a few months before they turn 65, and it's their job to opt out if they don't want it. If someone is not taking Social Security or Railroad retirement board benefits just before they turn 65, they have to choose to enroll in original Medicare when they turn 65. And they will have three enrollment periods, or I should say up to three enrollment periods that they may be able to choose. The first is called the initial enrollment period. And this applies to everyone. It starts three months before the month in which someone turns 65, includes the month of their 65th birthday and ends three months afterwards. So it's a seven month period. And people can choose to enroll then. If someone has what's known as creditable large group coverage, which is a fancy word for coverage that Medicare gives you credit for through, say, an employer or a union or their partner or spouse's employer or union, they can defer enrolling in original Medicare during their initial enrollment period. And they'll get a special enrollment period to enroll in Part A and or Part B of Medicare. And that special enrollment period is typically the eight-month period that starts when they lose or when they choose to stop receiving their creditable large group coverage. Now, a big mistake we see here is, you know, some people assume they have to sign up in their initial enrollment period or their initial election period. Turns out for most people, they should sign up for Part A because if they've worked and, you know, paid Medicare payroll taxes for at least 10 years or their spouse has worked and paid Medicare payroll taxes for 10 years, Part A is typically prepaid. That's the line item that people see on their W-2s as they're working. The one exception there is if people are making contributions to a health savings account 
You cannot make contributions to a health savings account, nor can an employer do so on your behalf if you're receiving any part of Medicare. And so, you know, one mistake here, people say, oh, I definitely should enroll in Part A in my initial enrollment period. For most people, it makes sense if they don't have an HSA or if they're not making contributions to their employer isn't. The second mistake we see people make is to say, oh, well, definitely have a special enrollment period. Most people will, but if they're receiving their current coverage, either through the Affordable Care Act or Obamacare plan or marketplace, or from an employer that has fewer than 20 employees or union members or group members covered, that is not creditable coverage. That is the trigger to be able to use the special enrollment period. So a major circumstance in which we see people suffer penalties for Medicare is they talk to their friends who say, no, you can enroll in original Medicare when you stop receiving your employer coverage. But if you work for a small employer that has fewer than 20 people covered, um, that coverage is not considered creditable for Medicare. And the penalty clock will start ticking as soon as someone's initial enrollment period ends, you know, at the end of the third month following the month of their 65th birthday. And so sometimes we see people, particularly affluent individuals who may wait as long as 10 years to use a special enrollment period. And let's say, you know, they have gotten their coverage, you know, let's say they're self-employed or, you know, they have a sole proprietorship or through a small business. The Part B penalty is 10% for every entire 12-month period you waited to enroll in Part B after you should have. And for someone who's in a higher income bracket, because Medicare Part B premiums are not prepaid, they actually go up with income. If someone waits a decade, they may be paying close to $6,000 in penalties per year. And those are lifetime penalties if they wait a decade to sign up and they're in the highest income bracket for the purpose of calculating their Medicare Part B premium. So that is a big penalty mistake that we see. Now, those people aren't without hope. I said there were three enrollment periods for Medicare. The third is bizarrely, but simply named the general enrollment period, which is essentially the catch-up period for people who miss their initial enrollment period and or miss their special enrollment period if they have one. And that's every calendar year between January and the end of March. And people can sign up for original Medicare in that period that will become effective on July 1st of that same calendar year. So all of those enrollment dynamics are major mistakes, You know, several variables there your age, is your current coverage through an employer or an individual plan? If it's through an employer or a union or a group, how many people are covered by that? Is it creditable? And then even if you have the opportunity to enroll in Medicare, you probably want to run the numbers because we find that for a majority of Americans who are employed and can stay in employer coverage, many of them can actually save money by opting into Medicare as soon as they're eligible by reason of age, even if they have the option of staying on their employer coverage. And the reason is that Uncle Sam essentially subsidizes the cost of coverage. And we find that many Medicare options provide even more benefits and equally robust networks. Although that's not the case for everyone. It really depends on someone's income level, on what they pay for their employer or group plan, if they have dependents who are under the age of 65 and a few other considerations. And so all of this means it's highly individualized. Um, I'll give a quick plug for us here. We do have a sign-up calculator on our website that asks for all of these questions and says not just, yeah, yeah. (laughs) you sign up in your initial period, your special enrollment period, or in the general 
election period. And we'll tell people specifically based on their situation, what the month start date and end date is for their situation. Um, And so that's one service we provide. But let's take a step back. You asked about the major misconceptions. That was just on signups and penalties. So let me hit the other two really quickly for you, Martha. The second is that many people think that the first plan they choose when they sign up for original Medicare can be changed um, at least annually or really anytime they want. And the answer to that is in the majority of states, that's not true, at least in terms of maximum flexibility. So to explain this, there are two types of additional coverage that most people consider. There are Medicare Advantage plans and Medicare Advantage plans, you know, were officially established, or I should say the predecessor was established late in the Clinton administration in 1997, although there had been managed care demonstration projects happening in Medicare since I think the 70s. And these are essentially privately administered Medicare plans. They have to provide at minimum the same scope of services as Part A and Part B. They typically provide additional services like a Part D prescription drug benefit and may provide coverage for some services like dental, vision, and hearing that are not included in original Medicare. And they give you an out-of-pocket maximum. These plans are great options for people, but there are two countervailing considerations that people should know about. One is these plans typically design a network of doctors or hospitals or healthcare providers that in an HMO, people are restricted to going to, or in a PPO, people can go out of network, but they'll get the most affordable co-pays if they stay in network. Mm -hmm. The second thing is just that there are co-pays every time, typically you see a doctor, typically some preventative services are carved out, but people should expect to pay out of pocket when they use services. Um, The second type of option that people can consider is called a Medicare supplement plan, which is also known as a Medigap plan. These plans are standardized by the regulators. And so there are specific benefit types for each type of Medigap plan. And confusingly, there are parts of Medicare, Part A, Part B, Part D drug coverage. And confusingly, Medicare supplements are also referred to via letters, but they're plan letters. So you know, now the most common plan is Plan G as in golf. It used to be Plan F as in Foxtrot. And a Plan G or Plan F by law, has to have identical covered medical benefits, irrespective of the carrier. So the only difference across a different Medicare supplement option is the name of the carrier, the premium you pay, and expectations of future premium changes. And some plans offer other ancillary services that aren't officially insurance benefits, but things like dental discounts or maybe fitness memberships, but they're not they're not medical benefits. And what is a Medicare supplement? I haven't said yet. A Medicare supplement fills the gaps and costs that original Medicare doesn't cover. So remember, original Medicare covers about 80% mm-hmm. of the cost of covered services. Medigap plans help to cover the vast majority of the 20 plus percent of expenses that original Medicare doesn't. What's nice about Medicare supplements is their, their networks are equal to every doctor or every healthcare provider in the country who accepts original Medicare. That is, you know, in most markets, uh, greater than 95% of healthcare providers, and even in some of the more concierge-driven markets like Manhattan or Los Angeles, typically north of 90% of healthcare providers. You also don't need a referral. And it gives people great peace of mind because it covers the vast majority of people's out-of-pocket medical expenses for services that are covered by original Medicare. So, you know, if those are the pros, two cons to think about for Medicare supplements. One is that there are monthly premiums for them. 
in addition to the Part B premium. And those monthly premiums, you know, can range between, you know, around $100 in some states, but there are some much higher cost states like New York, where they're almost $300 a month for a Medicare supplement, or at least the most robust types. The second disadvantage is because Medicare supplements sit exactly on top of original Medicare, they don't provide coverage for things like prescription drugs or dental vision and hearing. So people who go the Medicare supplement route, uh, or, well, I won't say they need, they will typically opt to choose standalone Part D drug coverage to defray the cost of their prescriptions. There's actually a Part D late enrollment penalty too. So sometimes that's a factor for people. And then they either pay out of pocket for dental, vision, or hearing, or they can buy standalone plans as well. Now, the second mistake that we see people make is they think, you know, it doesn't matter if I choose a Medicare Advantage plan or a Medicare supplement plan, I can always change them. And sometimes people can change them. But in 48 states, New York and Connecticut are the exceptions, the special snowflakes here, right? There are limitations on your ability to switch between Medicare supplement plans or to switch into a Medicare supplement plan if you haven't had one. And specifically, nationwide, if you sign up for a Medicare supplement to start during your first six months of Part B coverage, so your first six months of Part B of original Medicare, you have what is known as an open enrollment right to a Medicare supplement plan. It means you can't be denied coverage and you can't be charged a higher premium on account of your health status. In fact, they don't even ask you health questions if you sign up for your plan to start in the first six months of your Part B eligibility. If you don't have a Medicare Advantage plans in the vast majority of states, again, Connecticut and New York are the notable exceptions, you will have to answer health questions. And unlike some you know, some other markets, like maybe the life insurance market, the most common decision if you answer yes to a subset of those questions is the denial of coverage. And the reason that's important is we oftentimes get the question, why don't I start with the Medicare Advantage plan? And if I get sick, I'll switch to a Medicare supplement plan. And the answer is depending on the type of health condition you may have later on. If it's more than six months on Part B coverage, with limited exceptions, and there are a few exceptions, you have to answer health underwriting questions and you could be denied coverage, and that can be a challenge. Now, many people are still choosing Medicare Advantage plans because I didn't mention Medicare Advantage plans, the majority of them have $0 incremental premiums. Um, and so that's important. What does that mean, zero incremental dollar premium? So as long as you are enrolled in Part A, which is prepaid for most people, and you're paying your Part B premium, which in 2022 is $170 per month for most Americans, more if you're a high earner. Um, the majority of Medicare Advantage plans, or I should say the majority of counties have Medicare Advantage plans available that have $0 incremental premiums. And the reason for that is when someone enrolls in a Medicare Advantage plan, the government pays the Medicare Advantage plan a fixed amount per month to administer the care on behalf of you as the Medicare beneficiary. Now, you still have co-pays, um, there may be a network as I talked about, but that's different than a Medicare supplement where you pay your Part B premiums and then you pay the additional Medicare supplement premium every month, which is why people who go the Medicare supplement will pay more out of pocket every month, but many of them like the incremental peace of mind that that affords them. So I got off track there, but I want to come back to what the mistake is. Sometimes we see people, you know, not thinking through the first choice. Should I go the Medicare supplement or Medicare Advantage route? Um, and so it's important to consider that based on, you know, what your risk tolerance is, what your ability to afford a Medicare supplement plan is. And even if you can't afford it, you may not want one. You may want to go the Medicare Advantage route. 
um, a chapter we advise across Medicare supplements, Medicare Advantage plans. And for people who go the supplement route, we help people to navigate Part D standalone prescription drug plans as well. And then the third mistake we see people make is, you know, they think, you know, I signed up for Medicare once, Part A and Part B. I chose my supplement and my standalone Part D drug plan, or I chose my Medicare Advantage plan, set it and forget it just like I might do for, you know, a term life insurance policy, or just like you might do for a social security election. And as you mentioned about 15 minutes ago, that's not the case. The plans change every year, particularly standalone Part D prescription plans and Medicare Advantage plans. They change their networks, they change their prescriptions, they may change the cost sharing you pay, or your health needs may change. And so we recommend that people every year, if not every year, at least every few years, go back and, and reconfirm their current coverage and make sure it's right for them. On the Medicare supplement side, what's nice about it is once you have a Medicare supplement plan, it's guaranteed renewable. And so as long as the carrier's in business, they have to offer you the right to renew it, but they can increase premiums as people get older. And in most states and for most policies, those are rated on what's called an attained age basis. So for a given location, a given age, a given gender, and a given tobacco status. And so carriers can increase their premiums. And if people can pass underwriting, you know, if they can answer health questions successfully, they can look to switch, but not everyone can, particularly as they get older. So if people are hit with a particularly large premium increase, sometimes they may want to look and see if there's a better option, particularly if they're healthy, because they may be able to switch Medicare supplement plans by passing health underwriting. Um, and statistically, we know that's more likely as people are relatively younger and healthier. So let me summarize, you know, the three biggest mistakes are how and when to sign up for original Medicare so people can avoid penalties and make sure they get the coverage they need. We have a calculator for that on our website, choosing whether to go initially the Medicare Advantage or Medicare supplement route, and then every year thinking about if they want to change their coverage as either the plans change or their health needs change. There's a lot there that can go wrong. The penalty you mentioned, and you gave the example of someone who might have waited 10 years. You mentioned that general enrollment. So if they had been, if they had waited two years and then they enrolled during the general, would they still be subject to the penalties from those two years that they didn't sign up? Yes, they would. So if, if at least 24 months had passed following the last point when they should have enrolled, which you know is a special enrollment period if someone had creditable large group coverage, or if they didn't, is the end of their initial enrollment period. They would be subject every month to a 20% penalty um, in addition to their base Part B premium. So wow. Part B premiums are, for the majority of Americans, $170 per month, at least in 2022. Um, I think it's actually 100 and $70.10. But for the highest earners, they can be well north of $550 per month. So 20% of a larger number is a larger penalty that people pay. And that is a penalty that is imposed for life, or at least as long as someone remains enrolled in Part B. And so that's why it's important to make sure that people understand their enrollment periods. Yeah. Now, sometimes we get the question, you know, can I appeal the assessment of a penalty? And the answer is yes, but typically you as the beneficiary have to show that you got improper guidance from Medicare or the Social Security Administration. It doesn't matter if you got bad guidance from an employer or from someone else. That's typically not grounds for a successful appeal. Okay. Do you get many questions from your clients about Social Security? 
like we do when we help people with social security, we get a lot of people looking for help with Medicare. Do you find that with your clients? We absolutely do. And I think there are three things or three categories of questions we get. First, if someone's already drawing social security, sometimes they think they've already signed up for Medicare. That's half true. It means they'll be opted in, but they can opt out as we talk about. So, you know, if you're drawing social security before the age of 65, the default is that you will be opted into part A and part B. You can opt out um, and you'll receive a notice um, a few months in advance of your 65th birthday. The second circumstance is people ask, you know, I'm thinking about Medicare. Will signing up for Medicare or signing up for social security affect my enrollment in the other? And if someone enrolls in Medicare first, the answer is no, you know, while the social security administration helps you sign up for Medicare, um, signing up for Medicare part A and part B is not the same as choosing when to elect to start to receive your social security benefits. And that's where the experts at RSSA can be tremendously helpful, I know, um, in helping people to answer some of those questions. The third question that we get is people who know they want to defer enrollment um, or their election of social security. And they say, hey, when should I take it given my Medicare choices? Um, And the fortunate or unfortunate answer is for many people, the choice of when to start Medicare, if they're not already taking social security, isn't heavily dependent and doesn't help to influence when they should take social security. So we always recommend they consult professionals like folks at RSSA or who are certified by all to be able to understand some of those considerations. Yes. So outside of choosing chapter, how would someone make a good decision when choosing a Medicare advisor? Are they all, you've already addressed this a little bit. Are they all created equal? They, they get paid based on the policy that they're recommending. What are questions that people should be asking? I mean, they should be going to chapter is what I would say. But um, if they are working with, a, you know, what are the questions that they should be asking to find if they have a good Medicare advisor? There's a few questions we recommend people ask any Medicare advisor or Medicare broker or Medicare agent. The first is actually a two-part question. It's, do you search every plan across every plan type in my area? And most people say, yes, of course. And so the second part to that question is great. How many plans are available in my area and across how many carriers, right? And, you know, that's sort of signal one. Signal two is, can you search all of those plans at a really meaningful level of granularity. And what that means is, you know, if someone needs a hearing aid, can you tell me how much I'm gonna pay for a hearing aid? If you're my five doctors and my 12 prescriptions, can you guarantee that of all the plans that are available, right? You know, these doctors are, you know, the plan you recommend maximizes my coverage of physicians, which unfortunately you can't search on medicare.gov, but our database does allow you to do a chapter or the sum total of your prescription costs across copays and premiums is going to be most affordable. Um, The third thing to ask, and this is most important for people who are choosing Medicare supplements, but is, can, how do you help me to think about that? I'm not just choosing the most affordable and reputable carrier today for a Medicare supplement plan, but one that's likely to remain affordable in the future when the only option I'll have to switch Medicare supplement plans is to pass underwriting. And so one of the things that we do at Chapter is we actually roll forward 
the quote engine we've built and that we use for Medicare supplement plans. And it's impossible to predict how any carrier, you know, will price someone 10 years old or 10 years from now. But we do know how they price someone 10 or 15 or 20 years older than a current person is today. And that is an imperfect proxy but much better than nothing, because our belief is that more information is always better, and we empower folks with that. And it's an important feature we encourage people to look for, particularly when they're making their initial choice of a Medicare supplement carrier. And then the fourth question we encourage people to ask is, what type of ongoing support do you provide every year? Like, will you give me your name and phone number or the name and phone number of the specific person who helps me so I can reach out to them, not just next year, but as I have questions, you know, if God forbid I'm diagnosed with an issue and I need to find a high quality in-network specialist or I need to figure out how to save on a prescription that I've been newly prescribed, how do you help me with that, right? And I actually think that on the, sort of on that dimension, the vast majority of local brokers or advisors do an exceptional job in providing ongoing support. I really think it's just really hard for any individual to be able to search across every plan at that level of granularity, because that's a software problem. That's not a service problem. And so at Chapter, our philosophy is, you know, software and service, neither one of them are sufficient alone, but together, you know, they're much more powerful than than either one of them would be alone. And so that's the approach we've taken. Although, I, you know, I, I think there are many tremendous Medicare advisors. So that's the list of questions we'd recommend everyone to start asking, you know, as they try and find someone to help guide them through the process. Good. Well, that's really helpful for our listeners. I wondered if I could give you a, a potential situation, someone who retired from an employer that had credible coverage and was continuing, you know, was able to continue that coverage for themselves and their spouse. If the spouse is younger and the older spouse, the employee enrolls in Medicare, they can keep that previous health insurance that they had from their employer, correct? Is that considered a supplemental? So then the the younger spouse still has insurance under that employer paid health care plan until they reach 65 and the person that's over 65, is that like a secondary insurance to the Medicare? So it's a good question. Let me first back up because there's an important assumption here, which is some employers, particularly with more more innovative benefit models. And you typically see this with self-funded employers. So employers who self-fund their plans design their plans such that if someone who's eligible for Medicare and over the age of 65, who's the employee, chooses to use Medicare and a supplement or an Advantage plan as the primary coverage, that a covered dependent can still remain on the plan. However, that is the minority of, uh, or I should say that is a minority, that is an infrequent circumstance, that is not a common circumstance. And so typically, you know, we'll help the employee first to run the numbers and say, for the employee herself or himself, he or she consider Medicare, which is to say, can Medicare and, you know, the best options that are available provide more robust coverage for the same amount of monthly contribution or equal coverage at substantial savings? If the answer is yes, and the covered dependent is under 65, then we need to either ask, will the employer let the covered dependent be the primary policyholder, even though the covered dependent is not an employee? And that answer is sometimes yes, but more often than not is no. 
And if the answer is no, then you may want to price out individual market coverage for the covered dependent or covered dependents. And individual market coverage, particularly for people who are approaching the age of Medicare eligibility, can be quite expensive. And so the incremental cost for that individual coverage may outweigh whatever potential savings the employee gets. And that's the exercise that someone needs to go through. So sometimes what we see is, you know, it's an easy situation if Medicare doesn't provide better coverage for the employee, stop there. If Medicare provides better coverage for the employee, look and see whether the covered dependent or covered dependents could still be covered on the employer plan. If yes, then, you know, potentially proceed. If no, see if the what is likely to be incremental costs on an Obamacare or an Affordable Care Act plan are going to outweigh whatever savings that the Medicare eligible would get by transitioning to Medicare. And so part of this, we have a premiums calculator that helps to estimate this, but that's that's the process that's, that someone should go down. You also raised another important point here, or you raised it indirectly or hinted at it, which is that we oftentimes see people who retire as you said at the beginning of your example, from creditable coverage, and they still get coverage, but through COBRA. COBRA is not considered creditable coverage under Medicare, which means that the penalty clock will start ticking when someone goes on COBRA, even though it's the same network, it's the same plan, the employee is just paying, you know, 100 or 102% of premiums, right? So people should know that if they go on COBRA and they're Medicare eligible, they no longer have creditable coverage. So if that coverage was creditable, their special enrollment period starts the moment they go on COBRA. And that's important to keep in mind. And I should have mentioned this earlier in the question you asked about mistakes, because that's another common mistake we sometimes see. People assume that because COBRA is just a continuation of their employer plan, it counts as creditable. That's unfortunately not the case. I could talk with you for hours, Corey. (laughs) You um, work with couple, I mean, that's similar to Social Security, where the the interaction between the benefits affect both of the spouses. So you're able to do that with couples. Yes. And so decisions. Yes. Most commonly, you know, it is, there are some circumstances where if there is a covered dependent who's under 65 or not otherwise Medicare eligible, where it still makes sense for the covered dependent to choose an individual plan, but the savings at that point are typically not huge. So we typically see that, you know, we see a lot of people who as employees could benefit from going on Medicare on an individual analysis, but when you factor in the effects on their partner or spouse, who's not yet Medicare eligible, the decision for both of them is to stay on employer coverage for quite some time. Yeah. And so for context, you know, in certain states, it'll be close to or sometimes more than $1,000 per month for someone to get even a moderate and certainly a high quality individual market, you know, an affordable care or Obamacare plan, that typically is far more than the spousal contribution rate um, that's being paid for that covered dependent to stay on an employer coverage. Now, sometimes there are, it's not, and there are huge savings from the primary employee to switch to Medicare, and they will outweigh that. But if you're paying order of magnitude, $1,000 a month for a covered dependent where you used to pay, say, 250 that's a $750 monthly hurdle rate that Medicare has got to make up. And so that doesn't happen all that often. Sometimes we see it and we help people through that analysis if they have those questions. What we typically see, though, is many people are 
really satisfied with their employer coverage, right? Maybe, you know, the deductible is a little bit higher than they'd like, but, you know, they know their doctors are covered and their prescriptions are there. And so unless there are very significant savings, they're going to wait to enroll in Medicare until they retire and use their special enrollment period, right? Sometimes we see people transition early, particularly if they're contributing a lot of money every month. So every week we meet people who are paying four or $500 sometimes in individual premiums, um, either, you know, that's low on an individual market, but you know, for it's on the higher end of what people would contribute on a monthly basis to employer-provided coverage. Uh, but we'll meet them, and you know, they can typically find really significant savings on Medicare. Um, but again, the spousal point is a critical one. Well, this has been so interesting. You are full of so many details about Medicare, and I, I hate to end our show, but it, it is that time is um, where can people go? Give us the the chapter website or where they can get in touch with you. Yeah, of course. Our website is askchapter.org and people can go there and they can see the website. They can find their enrollment period. They can also call us if they want to speak with any of our licensed advisors, again, whose compensation never varies based on the specific coverage selected or recommended. And the phone number there is 855-900. C-H-A-P, that's 855-900-2427. And we have folks working every week as well as on Saturdays to support anyone with questions. We also do a lot of work supporting financial advisors, CFPs, accountants with questions they may have on behalf of their clients as well. And we're happy to be a resource for those professionals too. Great. They're also in our audience. So thank you so much, Corey. This has just been really educational. That wraps it up for today. Thank you all for listening to our podcast. Please tune in every Wednesday for new episodes. Our expert guests share a wide variety of knowledge about all things retirement related. See you next week.